You are listening to an audio broadcast from the Charlottesville Vineyard Christian Church. With a few hundred other people, with John Wimber, to uh, do this conference in England. And he, what he would do is he'd go and he'd have a leaders conference uh, during the week. And there'd be like several thousand people there. And he'd bring a ministry team with him of several hundred people from different churches in the United States. And so it'd be like a big team and it would be kind of a team of teams. And then on the weekends, we'd all split up and go to different individual churches um, around the country and do kind of weekend events there. So that's that allowed him to have a really big impact in a place. So I was invited to be a part of a team and uh, I was a part of somebody else's team because I was brand new to the vineyard. And so we get to this big auditorium. It was in a, a city called Sheffield in England. And uh, there were, um, it had like three balconies or something, you know. So it was, it was kind of more up than deep. And uh, they assigned each of our little sub-teams sort of a section. And they said, you know, you're supposed to do the ministry in this section and kind of oversee the section and what's happening there. And, you know, in particular, we we were trying to establish sort of Vineyard's approach to ministry. So if you see somebody else trying to horn in on it, you know, like every once in a while there's a wild-eyed Pentecostal thinks this is a good thing to come in, you know, you need to, you know, kind of calm them down and do it the Vineyard way. Okay. So again, in the very first session, and gets to the end of it, and there's all this ministry going on, and there's this guy, young man, in the back of my section, who's clearly going through like almost like a kind of a deliverance kind of a thing or something. And there's this little white-haired lady with her hair in a bun that's praying over him at the top of her lungs in tongues. And I thought, that is not the vineyard way, you know. So, you know, went back there, what's going on here, you know, and just kind of horned in and took over the whole thing and got involved and then looked at this lady's name tag. And it said, Carol Wimber. (laughs) And that was like, and she looks at me and she says, you think that's the way she wrote you? I never know what to do with these kind of situations. Why don't you go and do that? She was just unbelievably gracious. So that was how I met Carol Wimber. What a way to begin. So I always tell the younger guys, you know, you think you're going to be embarrassed by something. I've got you topped already. You know, uh, whenever there's a great outpouring, of course, of God's power. And there are seasons of outpouring where God like seems to come closer and stirs thing up. There's always then afterwards sort of a, a time of kind of atrophy or kind of quietness or whatnot that comes after. And I think sometimes it's just God being merciful so we can get some sleep, um, get some rest. Because generally in those wild times, sleep is at a premium. You know, we used to have this saying back in Jesus movement days that uh, 
Mary had a little lamb and became a Pentecostal nun and died from lack of sleep. So, you know, there is this kind of atrophy that happens. And so sometimes we wonder, like, what, what went wrong? Why isn't it the same way? Why isn't it the same now that it was in 85? Why isn't it like that? And, you know, there's a few reasons why. I think one is just simply it's not new. You know, the reality is, is when you're learning something, when something's new to you and you're just learning it, you kind of obsess over it and it becomes your main focus. I can remember back in the 80s, people said, is this just going to be the healing church? You know, is that all we're ever going to do? What about the other things? You know, well, and and it was like, no, we're going to do all the other things, but we're just learning about this right now. So we, but we learned that. So like now we're not focusing on that. We're maybe focusing on the next thing we need to learn. And then people are saying, I thought we were the healing church. <laughs> Can't win. So part of it is just not new anymore. It's just like we've learned how to pray for healing. It's, it's kind of, you know, like the first time I saw a, a healing, it was like a woman who had a sty on her eye and it got healed. And I thought that was the greatest thing since light spread. Now if we saw that happen on Sunday morning, we wouldn't even bother reporting it. You know, we wouldn't even, like, mention, oh, well, that person got healed of a sty because, you know, it's got to be really big or it's not worth saying something, you know. Um, So it's just we're not in the same place. It's not new anymore. Another thing, too, of course, is that churches don't stay the same. They turn over. And you end up, after a while, with a lot of new people who don't actually know anything about what the old days were like. They weren't there. They weren't part of it. That that hasn't happened to them. So it's like you're starting over. And, and particularly like in America now, there's a, although the last, the recession kind of put a stop to this. There was a lot of migration and people moving here and there and everything. Now everybody's like stuck. <laughs> everybody's stuck in place. They can't sell their house. They can't find a new job. So we're all stuck. So maybe we'll get some stability for a little bit. <laughs> but... Uh, before the recession, at least, we were like turning over nearly a third of our church every year just from people moving in and out. So you get a lot of new people for whom it's new. Then on top of that, there's the problem of sort of the old timers. You know, it's along the way, it's easy to get kind of tired and kind of disillusioned. Um. Because here's the thing. The more you pray for people for healing, the more you kind of do the ministry of the Spirit, you not only see more successes, you also see more disappointments. You know, you see more people healed, but you also see an awful lot more people that weren't healed. That's part of the deal. And sometimes, you know, then there's always, of course, the people who come to our church, got healed, and then left. You know, somebody said, you know, if you pray for the sick, you'll make your church grow. Well, only until they get healed. (laughs) Then once they've got what they want, then they're going to go in wherever else they want to be, and it might not be your church. Um, And then just to kind of make, you know, there's all kinds of abuses and foolishness that get mixed in with it. You know, and, you know. Sometimes people think, well, if I'm just more weird, then that makes it more God. (laughs) 
and you know, you know, it kind of makes you kind of thinking like, I don't want to go anywhere near that. You know, so that can have an effect. And it's, it's, I don't know about how it is for you, but it's not that we don't do it anymore at our church. We pray for healing every week. We actually probably see more healing now than we did in the old days. But emotionally, we don't respond to it the same way. You know, and um, so was, earlier this year, as I was kind of reflecting on this, I was preparing a series of messages. I, I just felt like God was saying, you know, what the vineyard needs to hear now is some of the parts about what you did at first that people don't usually talk about. And, you know, sort of brought me to that that passage where the, uh, God is speaking to the church in Ephesus in Revelation 2, where he says, go back and do the things you did at first. So I got to thinking about, what was it that we did at first? That sort of first enabled, you know, this huge flow of kingdom ministry and the work of the Holy Spirit. What what was it? And I, and I don't know if my story exactly matches everybody else's, but I suspect it's pretty similar to many people uh, in the early days. And so I, I just want to kind of reflect on that a little bit. Uh, you know, uh, the church I'm leading now, uh, we started with some other people. There's a little group of us that kind of banded together because we wanted to have a church that had guitars and we didn't have to dress up and wear ties anymore. And we, I was 23 years old when we started that church. So that's like 30-some years ago now. And uh, we were kind of the renewal church. Now, we hadn't met the vineyard yet. We didn't know about the vineyard. Um, we hadn't experienced all of those things. We believed that the Holy Spirit was alive in the world today and that there were spiritual gifts, but we had no idea how most of them worked. Didn't have any idea what to do with healing. And, but we were a renewal church because we used guitars in worship, which in 1975 was very, very radical. Now everybody does that, and it's not new at all anymore. You know, it, it would be more radical to do something else. So... The thing about it is, is when you're the Renewal Church, it's very quickly, it doesn't take very long before the Renewal Church needs to be renewed. And uh, that was the case with us. Um, And uh, I remember that uh, we had a weekend meeting. We had like 100 people or so in the church. And and, uh, we had a weekend get-together, kind of like... Kind of like this, only we went away on a retreat, and uh, we invited a pastor friend to come with us. And on Sunday morning, he stands up and gives this prophetic word to the church, basically telling us, you've left your first love, and you need to come back to Jesus. And and the way it was done, and just the way it happened, we weren't like insulted or offended. You know, everybody kind of felt like, no, that was God, that's true, we really... We need to somehow get back to our first love. And we didn't really have any idea how we were going to get renewed in that sense, how we would revive our first love. But we had some idea that maybe it might have something to do with prayer. So we started doing all these efforts towards prayer. So we had special prayer nights and special prayer mornings and prayer weekends and prayer chains and, you know, different things. 
to keep people praying because you have to keep changing the format to kind of keep people interested and keeping them coming. We kept doing that, and for three years we were praying, and nothing actually happened during that three years, or at least it didn't seem that anything happened. But during that time, uh, we felt about uh, 1981 like the Lord said to us that we really needed to kind of move to the poor and get more involved there. And that led to my wife and I moving to a Puerto Rican uh, neighborhood in Chicago that was kind of a ghetto. In fact, uh, we didn't know it at the time, but we bought a house a half a block from Latin King headquarters. (laughs) And uh, it was an abandoned house. It had been an abandoned house and then owned by the government, by HUD, and then this Puerto Rican guy came in and fixed it up a little bit and then sold it to us. And uh, we, prayed, we paid the grand total price of $18,500 for this house. So I always tell the younger people, like, you know, you can get in the housing market. That's just a question of where you're willing to start. <laughs> and that's where we started. <laughs> and... Uh, we kind of thought if we went to this neighborhood and we had guitars and worship and we didn't dress up to go to church and we had small groups that they would all like come to Jesus because that's kind of what happened where we were before. And uh, it didn't really work. Nobody came to Jesus. Uh, it turned out that they already had rock and roll music. Thank you very much. And... They didn't dress up to go to church because they didn't go to church. And they already had small groups called gangs. (laughs) And uh, we had this little storefront that we were trying to have church in. And one night we're meeting in there and this guy comes in and he falls on his knees in front of me and he grabs me and he says, uh, I'm a heroin addict, and I'm in hell, and I need help. Can you do anything for me? And uh, I couldn't do anything for him. I had no idea what to do. And uh, he left without getting help. And so that sent me into this prayer, just like, God, you know, like, I've known about your power, but I don't know enough. You know, like, now you have to understand, I grew up in a Pentecostal church. My dad was a Pentecostal pastor. My grandfather was a Pentecostal pastor. I spoke in tongues when I was 11, and I was a late bloomer. <laughs> so it's, it's not like, you know, I was completely unacquainted with the idea of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit's power, but this was a, diff- a completely different category of anything that I'd experience. And so I just began saying, I, God, I need to, uh, I need to have more power. Well, it didn't come. And a year went by and two years went by and nobody came to Jesus. And I wasn't getting any more power. And I began to experience something I'd never experienced before in my life. I began to have severe depression, which was probably partly a consequence of the fact that every single day I felt like we were failing because we were. 
And eventually it got to where it was a struggle to get out of bed. And it was almost impossible to pray. I could write my prayers, but I couldn't, like, speak my prayers. And I would, sometimes my prayer for the day would just be help or do something. If you've ever experienced depression, you know that there's this kind of blackness that comes over you, and it's hard to even think straight. And you're, like, sliding down this hole, and there's nothing to grab onto. Um, and I didn't know much about depression. I, you know, now if somebody came to me in that state, I'd like send them and get them some medication to stabilize the situation. And I'd know a lot more. I knew nothing about all that. So I was just going down. And, you know, everybody knew something was wrong. But nobody knew what to do. And, I, you know, I tried all kinds of things. You know, like, okay, God... Uh, I'll give you till January 1st next year. And if January 1st comes and nothing's changed, I'm out of here. And I found out that God is very secure. January 1st would come and go, and he would not do anything, and I was still there. You know, and after a couple of years, I said, okay, God, I've learned my lesson, whatever it is. That didn't, that didn't work either. And... Uh, Finally, I decided we're going to close the church. And I set the date. And I called my team. I had, I had people that had moved down there with us to be part of the team. And I set the date. We're going to meet. We're going to talk about closing the church. I had my talk all ready. You know, okay, guys, we've given it a good shot. We've really done it and nothing's happened. You know, God doesn't seem to be in this. We must have heard wrong. Let's go home. And the day before the meeting, George Claudio got saved. And I was so angry <laughs> because it was like, this is not fair. I can't get this church to go. Now I can't close this church. I've got to like stay and take care of this baby Christian. You know, the day before I'm ready to call it quits, he gets saved. So I was very unhappy about George coming to Jesus. And it's sort of like, this is really bad. I can't make this church go. And I can't, I'm not even capable of closing this church. I'm really just completely trapped. And make a long story short, kind of jumping ahead in the story, it turns out George had lots of relatives. And that was the beginning, actually, of the church happening. As all those relatives started coming to Christ and like. George eventually became a church planter. He's in Milwaukee. He planted a church up in Milwaukee. And his son now is helping plant churches in Africa. So, you know, I mean, things come out of these things that you don't see at the moment, you know. <laughs> but uh, for me at the time, it seemed like another disaster. And... Uh, So around that same time, I'm in the midst of this. There's a guy that comes into the church in Evanston, which I was still kind of involved in leadership in Evanston, even though we'd moved to this ghetto and we're trying to plant that church down there. And, and uh, 
he was very interested in healing. But he was listening to all, like, the faith healers. You know, if you just have enough faith, you can always be healed kind of a thing. And we, we kind of liked this guy. We wanted to help him move towards leadership. But we were very uncomfortable with the faith healer approach to healing. We didn't, we just thought, like, somehow that doesn't feel right. So I somehow got the short straw, and it became my job to sit with this guy and straighten him out. And the thing you have to understand is I had no interest in the subject of healing whatsoever. And so I quickly realized that if I was going to like make any headway with this guy, that we were going to somehow have to come up with something that was a better approach to healing. I couldn't just, you know, it's one thing to like poke holes in somebody else's approach to healing. But it, the simple fact of the matter was they were actually seeing more people healed than we were with our non-approach. So, you know, if, <laughs> if you're going to like, you know, really convince this guy of something, you know, like you got to come up with something better. And so... First, my first thought was, well, find a book. That's how I've gotten through most of my life. I'll find a book. Right? But at that particular point in time, 1983, there weren't very many books out on healing. There was a, a book by an Episcopalian lady named Agnes Sanford called Healing Light, which I'm still not sure to this day I understand what she was talking about. It's kind of mystical and up there and kind of out there. And anybody here ever read Agnes Sanford? Uh, so, well, you don't. One person, maybe. It's kind of out there, right? A little mystical, especially if you've never experienced it. She, doesn't, she didn't know how to try quite bring it down to people. I think she actually was on to something, but I couldn't understand it. And so that wasn't any help. And then there was this Catholic priest guy named you know, Francis McNutt, and he had a book, and that was kind of helpful, but he didn't. there were lots of questions I had that he didn't answer. So... That didn't resolve things for me very much. So then uh, I finally remembered, you know, the old saying in my father's, when all else fails, read the directions. So I thought, okay, well, I think we're going to have to look in the Bible. So this guy and I started kind of going through the Bible to see what we could see about healing together. We'd sit down together and we'd just take it, you know, like, a book at a time and dig out what we could and talk about what was going on. And, and uh, it was interesting because, and you have to remember, I've been in Sunday school since I was like two days old and knew all the Bible stories and knew all the healing stories in a sense. But I, in another sense, I'd never really read them. Because what happens is you, you kind of, it's very easy to like read over them. So-and-so got healed. Well, that's Jesus, and that shows that he's God, and so then you go on. But you don't actually look at it. So now for the first time, I'm actually looking at, like, what exactly did they do? How does this work? Where's the magic word that turns it on? You know, there's got to be something in here that explains how this works. So we're kind of going through, and we're looking at it. And the more we saw more troubling it became because there's just really a lot of weird things in the Bible. You know, there's, you know, like, 
Jesus like sticking muddy spit in people's eyes and you know the the boy that can't speak or hear and Jesus like sticks his fingers in his ears and says be open like what kind of prayer is that and then you know the kid can hear but he still can't speak so he says stick out your tongue and like Jesus spits on the kid's tongue this never makes it in the Jesus movies ever they never put that one in I would love to see that one in a Jesus movie sometime. You, you, just, you have a hard time even picturing it, don't you? But that's in there. I'm not making that up. And you're know, like, well, what's that? You know, like most of the time there's not even really prayers. You know, there's no dear God, no please, no if you will, no. It's just weird stuff. You know, and then, and then you get in the book of Acts and, you know, there's they're going up to... The temple, Peter and John, and there's this lame man. And, and they say, you know, look at us, you know, silver and gold have we not. And I thought, I totally understand this situation, just like the panhandlers in Chicago. You know, I don't have any change, you know. <laughs> and, and, but then they say, such as we have, we give you in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. And I thought, well, like, how can I say that? Such as we have. Where do, how do they get it? And where do they keep it? And, you know, I thought only God could heal the sick. So, you know, and, and there's no prayer at all. They don't ask, they don't speak to God in that story at all. They don't even speak to God. And so, you know, it was, it just kind of was a conundrum. It's like, what is all this? You know, and one one thing we started to realize is, you know, we kind of had this way of praying when we had to pray for somebody. You know, like I tried to avoid praying for sick people, but, you know, when people get sick, they like go to their pastor and they want some kind of answer. You know, either like God doesn't do that anymore or, you know, or something, you know. So when we got in a corner and we had to pray for the sick, we had a way of praying. We would pray and we would tell God all the reasons why he should heal this person, you know, that... They never miss church. They're, they're good tithers, you know. They've never messed up. And we also have an alternative one if their track record wasn't so good. You know, like, oh, God, think what a great testimony it'll be. We kind of had this idea that here's the sick person, here's God, here's me, and my job is to somehow convince God or trick him or, you know, manipulate him, and then he will somehow just independently zap this sick person and make them well. But we couldn't find hardly any models of that like that in the whole Bible. We thought, well, maybe that's why it doesn't work. Because in the Bible, mostly what you seem to get is more like something has happened between God and this person who's the prayer. Something has happened there. And then this person does something to the sick person that conveys healing to them, that it goes from God to the prayer to the sick person, not this other way. But then the question was, obviously, well then, how do we get this something to happen? How does that happen? So around that time, we somebody came up with these tapes from some guy named John Wember who was talking about healing, and he was teaching seminary students out in California about praying for the sick. And so we started listening to those. And then if 
that eventually led us to a big breakthrough and outpouring, and the Holy Spirit came, and people started getting healed, and so forth. But here's the thing I really want to underline. Before all the wonderful things could happen, I first had to come to the end of myself. You see, I thought I went to Humboldt Park to the ghetto to do ministry, to start a church. Now, in retrospect, I realize that actually the church wasn't the project. I was the project. And I went there so God could bring me to the end of myself. And by the grace of God, a church did happen in spite of everything. But really, I was the project. Because, you see, I, th- I kind of thought I knew how to do ministry. If you just do this, and you just do this, and you just do this, then it's going to happen. And I found out that I did all those things, and nothing happened. I thought a few good ideas and a good vision would do it. But it didn't. Good ideas weren't enough. A good vision wasn't enough. And sometimes I think what we fail to realize is that before the great work of God can happen through us, God must first do the great work in us of bringing us to the end of ourselves. And if you look at the Bible, you realize he does that to people all over and over again. Moses. Moses had an inkling of what he was called to early on. That's how he ended up killing that Egyptian. But he was trying to do it with his own good ideas. That wasn't going to work. So 40 years in the desert for you, Moses, herding sheep, coming to the end of himself. Or Gideon, who had to give away 99% of his army before he got to do anything. Or the 12. Or Peter. Or Paul. It just goes on and on. Again and again and again. Before God does this great thing through us, there must first be this coming to the end of us. See, here's the thing. In life, in the church, as a pastor, as a church leader, just a Christian, you can do everything right and still not have it work. This is what a lot of people don't get. You can do everything right, and it still won't work. And they'll say, it doesn't work for me. And they'll be mad and stomp off. But what they don't understand is, is that, you know, this is not like a machine where you, like, put your quarter in and out comes the thing. It's not a vending machine. It's a relationship. And before things can go forward, it has to become his. And that means we have to come to the end of ourselves. 1 Corinthians 2 1. This is how, what Paul says to him. He says, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on men's wisdom, but on God's power. In other words, he comes like in weakness. He comes shaking and trembling. He's 
almost, you know, you think, what is this? It's not the words that make it happen. It's, it's you know, it has to be a God thing so that when, when something happens, everybody knows it's him. And, you know, he then goes on when he talks about his own weaknesses. He says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That, that verse is very key, and it never makes those little pocket promises. <laughs> but he says, I will boast more about my weaknesses so that, in order that, Christ's power may rest on me. You can't get to the great to the fullness of what God's power working in your life apart from embracing weakness. You can't. He says, that's why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties, for when I am weak, I am strong. The God ordained and natural setting for the display of God's power is the place of brokenness and weakness and helplessness. And I don't know about you, but I'm not that good at it. When it's up to me. I, I remember, you know, shortly after this, you know, the outpouring came. Things were happening. The church was growing. I wasn't as depressed anymore, but I still felt really weak. It always felt, and this is true to this day, it always feels like depression is just right back there ready to come back any minute. It's like my shadow now. It's, it's like a, a permanent debility almost. And so one day I'm praying and say, God, like, when am I going to be strong again? I used to be strong. When do I get to be strong again? And he says, you're not. Why not? Why? Because if you get strong again, you'll rely on yourself. Oh, yeah, I forgot. So we don't like it. We try to avoid it. But God insists on it. He insists. And, of course, in those days, sometimes when we encountered the power of the Spirit, he would just underline our weakness and our helplessness. You know, God was very good at reducing us to shaking helpless balls of tears and snot. I remember one time I'm on the floor, utterly undone, and Wimber's standing on the stage, and he points at me and laughs and says, that's what you get for being a vineyard pastor. So it's important that we come to the end of ourselves. And sometimes, you know, if, if the power comes without having coming to the end of ourselves, that is actually becomes a danger because we think it's us or we think it's our goodness, and it really has a tendency to abuse of power. It's very interesting. Before they were really fully broken, the disciples had some taste of the power of God. And in Luke 9, there's this interesting interchange where... There's a Samaritan village that doesn't, like, receive them with open arms. And so the disciples see this, and they say to Jesus, Lord, do you want us to call down fire from heaven to destroy them? That's what they say. Shall we call down fire from heaven? And it says Jesus rebuked them. You know, you guys don't understand the nature of the spirit you're dealing with yet. Let's just go to the next place. See, they were 
they were still kind of full of themselves. They hadn't come to the end of themselves yet, and there was sort of an abuse of power that was just ready to come out at any minute like that. So usually God holds it back until really we've come to that place. You know, that's, that's why we always had this saying in the vineyard, never trust a pastor who doesn't walk with a limp. You know, who hasn't somehow been encountered God and brought to that point of embracing their weakness and coming to the end of themselves. God calls us actually to stay in a place of weakness and desperation. You know, throughout our life, remembering our weakness, delighting in it, boasting about it. That way when the power comes, everybody knows it's God and not him. And that's why God, of course, keeps picking sometimes cracked vessels to do his work. Sometimes we say, well, why do you, God, why do you like give your power to the guy you like can't stay away from the prostitutes? You know, well, just want you to know it's me and not him. So the thing is, is sometimes we think that once the power comes, the weakness will be over, but Rather, it's just the beginning. And the corollary of God's power and weakness is that we must continually give over control of our lives and our ministries to God. So, you know, we had this sort of, here's kind of the way it happened. You know, we, we, we listened to these tapes from when we actually got this little group of people together of stable people. We had a secret meeting to listen to these Wimber tapes and check them out. And we didn't invite, you know, there's some people that always like everything they hear. Whatever the last thing they hear, that's what they want. We didn't invite them to be part of this group. We wanted people with a little dose of Chicago skepticism, you know. And so we put them in this group and we'll, we'll test it out with them and listen to these tapes and see how it goes. And so we started listening to these Wimber tapes on healing, you know. And, uh, after a while, we thought, we, we kind of like this. We can go further. So then we, we contacted the vineyard and asked if we could have somebody come and do a conference at our church. So Lance Petluck, who's now the pastor in Anaheim, came. And he was great for us because he's, if you know Lance, he's like real low-key. There's not a demonstrative bone in his body. And uh, that was perfect for us because we were kind of a little uncertain. You know, you know what, what is this going to be like, you know? He came, and people got healed, and we thought, man, we like this more. And then we decided, you know, we just really need to make sure that this is really the way it is advertised. We know that a lot of times when Christians talk about the great things God's doing in their place, they speak rather elastically or evangelistically, you might say. You know, Christian publicity is kind of notoriously unreliable, so... Let's send a few guys out to Anaheim and see if it's really the way they say it is. Let's, let's check this out on the scene. So I went out with a couple other guys, and it wasn't a conference. It was just a regular dude went out there. And so first day we get there, and, and uh, lo and behold, there's an old friend of mine there, a guy named Kevin Springer. I said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm helping John Wimmer write a book. And he says, you know, hey, I've been doing these pastoral renewal conferences, and my speaker 
had an emergency and couldn't come. And so John Wimmer's going to speak this afternoon at this little conference we're doing for pastors. Why don't you come? So we came. There's about 50 pastors in the room. John comes in and he talks, gives a talk, something like how pastors are supposed to be servants or something like that. I don't remember that part very well. And uh, we get to the end of it. And he says, okay, everybody, you can just stand. So we all stand up. And he says, just relax. You can open your eyes or close your eyes. So I'm thinking, I'm going to open my eyes and see what goes on here. Then he just says, you know, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come, which I thought was kind of novel because there was no music. We hadn't sung, you know, three verses of Just As I Am or anything else, and there was no emotional setup. It was just really deadpan, just Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. And then we're like all standing there waiting, relaxing. And I'm after about a minute, which is a long time when you're all standing there waiting, I'm thinking, I am like, the Holy Spirit's busy somewhere else today. And Then he like points at this guy in the front row and says, hey, look at the Holy Spirit coming on that guy. And I'm thinking, I'm looking and I'm thinking, I don't see it. I don't know what I was looking for, but I thought, I don't see doves or lights or what's he looking at? What's he talking about? What kind of glasses does he have? And he goes over and touches that guy. I mean, he just barely touches this guy in the forehead, and the guy starts crying. And I think, mm, that's interesting. Then right next to him, the guy's wife starts crying. And I thought, well, that figure. She's probably been waiting for 10 years for him to break down. <laughs> so then about, this, about that time... I'm standing there, and there's this lady. She's in the row behind me, and she's a few seats over, so she's just in my peripheral vision. She starts doing this with her hands, like shaking her hands. Where'd they get her, you know? Where are the ushers? Because I'd never seen that before. Where are the ushers? And I, you know, I knew it. California, land of fruits and nuts, you know. And <laughs> just completely in a place of judgment on her for shaking her hands like that. And just as I'm in that point, you know, all of a sudden John says, now receive the Holy Spirit a little more forcefully. Like, you know, you're not doing it. And when he did, it was like a fist hit me in the chest. Just bam. So it knocked me over my chair. So at that point, you know, my first thought is, I must regain control of my body as quickly as possible. Because I don't want to be like her. Because <laughs> was, there was a sense of like, I'm not in control of my body right now. I need it back right away. <laughs> and then my second thought is, since when does God hit people? Where is that in the Bible? Turns out it's in a lot of places in the Bible. Whoever said God is a gentleman never actually read the Bible. And... You know, then, then there was a, another thing that, you know, where all of a sudden I realized, you know, like, if you'd asked me five minutes before, do I believe in the Holy Spirit? I said, of course I believe in the Holy Spirit. But I realized at that point there was a place where, a part in my heart where I always kind of thought, well, the Holy Spirit is like an emotional state you get into or something theoretical, you know, like something in mathematics or something. I never really got. And... This wasn't an emotional state, you know. I was in the emotional state of judging this lady here, so I figured that's not a conducive state. 
And this was not theoretical. It was actually brute force. And I, I, it just made me realize, you know, like, there's a sense in which I never really, I thought I believed in the Holy Spirit, but I really didn't. As, that I really didn't think he was a concrete reality in this world. So I started to repent of my disbelief. And as soon as I did, my whole body went pins and needles. Like, I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't speak. I couldn't move anything. The next thing I know, my friends are laying me out on these chairs, and they're saying, what are we going to do with him now? Then a few days later, we had another encounter with the Holy Spirit, which was a lot more violent. You know, it was more like a fiery electricity going through my body for three hours. And uh, so when we got back, it happened that we had a gathering of the whole church. We had this celebration at the beginning of every year, and we'd have a big banquet, and we'd all get dressed up, and we'd celebrate the previous year and look ahead to the next. And... So it was my turn to speak. So I get up and I say, you know, we've been praying for this revival and I think now God is going to bring it. So everybody just stand and just relax and you can open your eyes and close your eyes. And then, you know, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come. And we waited. And then there's the guy in the front row who kind of had a funny look on his face. And I thought, well, I don't know if that's the Holy Spirit yet or not. I still don't get that part. But uh, I'll go for the funny look. So I went over and prayed for him and... As soon as I touched him, he fell down on the ground, which had never happened in our church before. He just went, boom. I think I'll do that again, you know. Started looking around for somebody else with a funny look on their face. And before the evening was over, half the church was on the floor. So there was this huge outpouring. And people, you know, like right away, people started getting healed. That We hadn't seen people get healed. And people, you know, people were coming to church early. You know, and excited about Jesus again and so forth. Shortly thereafter, we had a meeting of the leaders of the church. And somebody gives this prophetic word. Okay, you've got the revival you've been looking for. But if you want it to keep going, you're going to have to give the church back to me. And message was sort of like, you guys have always like just run this thing according to what you thought. And you never let anything happen that you weren't completely comfortable with ahead of time. And now I want you to give the church back to me. If you want this to keep going, you know, you've got to sign the blank check. And my first re- response was like, I don't, I, don't, I don't want to give the church back to God. If I give it back to God, there's no telling what he'll do with it. Like... You know, I started this church for me. So I can have a church I like. If I give back to him and he changes it, what if I don't like it? What if he, like, makes us do something I don't agree with? So I'm kind of turning all this over in my mind, like, you know, like, I, I don't know. I don't, what is it? You know. But I just really couldn't see myself saying to God, no, I'm going to keep your church for myself. I couldn't find my way around that. So reluctantly, and I mean reluctantly, I kind of went with the right, okay, God, we're giving the church back to you. And then kind of just holding my breath, you know, fingers crossed, what's going to happen? And the interesting thing, of course, is that a year later I was talking to my father about it, and I said, well, I don't think he liked our church very much. 
We gave it back to him, and he changed almost everything. <laughs> Fortunately, I thought it was all better. I liked it a lot better than what I had built myself. But that's the thing. It's, it's, and I think this is where we get hooked, where we see this outpouring of the Spirit or, or, or uh, you know, God works on our life. One of the problems is, is that we think then, okay, now I can take it back for myself. And we, we keep wanting to, like, take it back and be in control and be strong. And actually, if it's going to keep going, if it's going to keep fresh, if God's going to keep working, you just have to continually keep giving it back. You have to sign the blank check over and over and over again. Because the life we're called to is a life of dependency. You know, the, the, one of the most important verses in the, in the vineyard sort of Bible, John 5, 19 and 20, where Jesus says, The Son can do nothing by himself, but only what he sees the Father doing. If the Son can do nothing by himself, then what does that say about us? Okay, we can only do what he gives us to do. And we have to do everything that way. It's kind of like, you know, it reminds me of the the story where the disciples are fishing. They fished all night. And they're fishermen. It's their profession. And nobody, no fish. They didn't catch anything. And Jesus comes and says, you know, kind of rubbing it in. How does it go, brothers? Did you catch anything? I think he kind of knew the answer already. No. It's a bad night. Go out again. Put the nets on the other side, which is a stupid idea. As if it would make a difference. But they did it. And, of course... Huge harvest. You know, it's it's a life of doing what he gives us to do. Life of dependency. So the question is, you know, have you come to the end of yourself lately? Or are you still hanging for dear life to the last shred of your sense of strength and control? You know, how about your ministry? How about your church? Your reputation? Because I think if we really want to see more kingdom ministry, we, we have to embrace this, this commitment to continue to live in weakness and, and a loss of control. So let's take a few minutes. And I'm going to just let you pray. Just you between you and God. Maybe there's something you and he need to talk about in this regard right now. We'll just stand here for a few minutes and we'll do some minutes.